Steve Kilby is the singer-songwriter for seminal Australian rock band The Church. He speaks with Andrea Baker about his recently released memoir, Something Quite Peculiar. In the book, you wrote uh, this book of poetry, Earthed, mm -hmm. to impress the girls in the nightclubs. Mm -hmm. Why did you write this memoir, Something Quite Peculiar? Who are you out to impress? You know what? The truth is, with the memoir, I did it for the money. The original reason I actually did it was because I got offered some money to do it. I got offered a sort of an okay advance, so I needed the money. At my book readings, you know, people go, why did you write this book? And when I say for the money, people go, oh, God. But it's the truth. It's not, I didn't write it because I, I wanted to tell people about my life. You know, obviously, if someone says, do you want to come around and mow my lawn? I go, yeah, I'll do it for the money. But once I'm mowing the lawn, I'm putting everything I've got into mowing the lawn. Once I'm writing the book, I'm focused on that and I want to make it the best book I can. But at 60 now, you have got a lot to reflect on in your very multi-layered, colourful, rich career. I do, and I had, a lot of, I had a lot of ammunition. See, the difference between a memoir and an autobiography, which I didn't really realise, if it had been an autobiography, I would have told everything and I would have gone right up to the modern day, and, but I haven't really done that. It's very much about this specific period, I think, the rise and the fall. So um, it is really just a memoir of those particular days. So they were, it's a memoir of your fun times? The fun times and the bad times. Um, I think the stuff that would be interesting for people to read, I felt like if they read about me in my current phase, and it's something like, yeah, I got up, I did yoga, I took the kids to school, and I sat at home and behaved myself. I think that would be pretty boring after a while. I thought the stuff that people probably wanted to read about was the hurly-burly of my life. You know, the, the, the gigs and the, the heroin days is a kind of the stark contrast against those. Well, talking about hurling things over, I, um, I read when you were coming over on the boat as a part of the 10 pound POM project, um, you threw your mother's watch overboard. Yeah. What do you think um, that reflects about the early, early development of your character? I think I was like Lucifer. As soon as he was created, he turned round to God and said, how can I rebel? Because I th I'm a great believer in reincarnation. And I'm, I'm not a believer in it. I'm sure of it. It's, I, I accept it like I accept night follows day. I think we've all lived before. And when I came into this world, as soon as I could think, I was frustrated by being a child and I was frustrated by my mother pulling me around. So um, why did I throw a thing? To rebel against all the, the combing my hair and pulling me around and, you know, um, this English values. There was another bit that the, they deleted from the book, which I wrote about. I was pretty disappointed, but I went with it. I had a foot fetish. I used to sit under the table and look at all the women's feet and it sort of really turned me on, but I couldn't understand why. So I was a weird kid in times when kids weren't supposed to be weird. I mean, no one was going, gee, this kid could be the next John Lennon or whatever, because John Lennon hadn't happened then either. He was out there somewhere going through his own travails. So speaking of that then, how did your parents influence your music career? 
My mother had no influence on it at all um, and was kind of, I guess she was just healthily neutral. But my father, if I went to my dad, and because I was a bass player and a singer, and in those days a singer had to have a PA as well as, so being a bass player and a singer, I had to have all the bass equipment and the bass guitar, and then I had to have a PA and the microphones and all the leads and all the rest of it. So I, I had a pretty expensive, and a car to drive it all around in. So who did I go to all the time? Dad, I need this, Dad, I need that. But of course also um, when you were earning money playing as a young musician, you paid rent, but then your mother gave all that rent back she to you. She gave it all back. And you've also described as your dad as a top bloke. Look, I, I, when I started writing this book, I started talking to other people about their childhoods. When I really started looking at my childhood, um, I realised how lucky I was to have such great parents. There was no violence, there was no drinking, there was no, there was no bad language, there was no nothing. It was like a real, it was a real nuclear, just like the one everybody thinks that you should have. When I contacted some of the people from my high school and was writing them about my childhood, they were going, well, I, Steve, I didn't have a childhood like that. You know, my dad used to come home drunk and was out of work and, you know, my mother couldn't speak English. Uh, suddenly I realised when I was writing the book, man, you had a really golden childhood. So by the age of 16, 17, there was a slight dilemma about to be a rock star or a football star. <laughs> I knew I wanted to be a star. You know, this was my number one thing, is you must be a star. What will you be a star at? Oh, we'll sort that out later. Oh, maybe football could be a good thing for you. Completely ignoring the fact that um, I was the most hopeless, skinny... Um, I remember once I was playing football and something happened, this kid ran up to me and said, You're a girl! You're a girl. And that was like the worst thing he could think of to say to me for my lack of football sort of oomph and mojo. I guess I didn't want to get hurt. There was also another bit in the book which got sort of edited out where I was thinking of going into the Navy, but that didn't work out because I was no good at maths. <laughs> the maths saved me, thank God, from that. So, um, yeah, rock star was all that was left in the end. So speaking of rock stars, you do talk about your influences during that time and continued influences. Who would you say, of all the, you know, the contemporary or past musicians that you really feel um, inspired by and influenced by? I didn't write a lot, a lot about him in the book, but Mark Bolan. Um, of course, of course I love the Beatles, of course I love the Rolling Stones, of course I love Bob Dylan, that's obvious. But the first time I fell in love with another man as an idol, I had his pictures up in my room, I devoured everything his music, the way he looked, the things he said, um, the way he wore his hair, makeup, everything about it was Mark Bolan. Even though David Bowie was to come along, still it was Bolan who was the, like, the guy who took my virginity in my mind of, of idolising someone and going, I just want to be like them. And he also, he showed me the way I could do it because I wasn't, I wasn't your average rock star I sort of, I was more delicate, like the rock and roll musicians and the stuff I was hearing, it was all deep purple, it was guys, sort of mascul very masculine guys, going, oh my baby, oh my God, the blues. And I'm like, that's not really me, I'm more like, I'm not really like that, I'm sort of more like delicate or something. And then when Bolan came along, and he was kind of, as I write in the book, um, he was a fae stud, 
he was kind of very studly and it was definitely about having sex with women but it wasn't kind of like hey baby i'm a guy you know it was more like it was more like, hey, do you like Greek mythology? Oh, great, let's have sex, you know what I mean? So, I, so I, it sort of showed me, um, he was reconciling all the things I was interested in. You know, when I first came across Bolan, I could see, I could see the way forward for me. I could see how I could get a piece of this rock and roll action without being this kind of footy player type as the way I perceived Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and all those bands, they were very, the bands at the time that were kind of selling lots of records, all very masculine and they were singing about being on the road and all that, whereas my preoccupation was more sort of literary and um, rooted in the past. So I had this real f fixation with ancient Greece and ancient Rome and then suddenly Boland came along and was singing about this stuff, singing about dryads and fauns and... Um, this stuff and he sort of showed me how how it could all be reconciled because I was I was it was compartmentalized up until then sort of loving the Iliad and loving rock and roll I didn't know how to put the two together now I do so then moving to I read in the book about this whole idea about the supergroup um, you, um, Grant McKellen, Paul Kelly, and Neil Finn. Yeah. Idea or, well, my, now mine is one, um, still in the pipeline? No. Um, I read someone asked Neil Finn about that, and he said, he said that was funny. He never heard about that. Uh, that was Grant McLennan's idea. And when we sat down and talked to Paul... I can still remember it was in King's Cross and he was hanging out with Karen Fairfax and she was friends with my girlfriend who was Karen Jansen. It was very confusing. Anyway, we were sitting there and Grant was saying, um, oh yeah, Paul, Steve's got this great way of recording and Paul's going, yeah, what's that? And, he was, and Grant was going, oh, he just makes it all up. He just makes it all up. And Paul's going, what do you mean? He said, oh, we don't have anything prepared. We just go in the studio and Steve's playing around with stuff and making it all up. And Paul's like, hmm... Hmm, yeah, well, and sort of uh, we walked away from there and I said, I don't think Paul's going to be on board with this at all. And Grant and I were really besotted with each other. I'm a very heterosexual man, but um, I, I have the capacity to get besotted by other men. And when Grant and I met each other, we became very besotted with each other and sort of amazed at what the other one could do. So he sort of said, let's forget those other guys. So just you and me, we'll do it on our own. We'll be Jack Frost on our own. Well, I saw you at the opening. Somebody's hand was up the dress. You were showing off. Everything except your finesse. Talking about Grant, mm. passed away mm. quite a few years ago now at 48, he introduced you to heroin. Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, and I guess I was never, that was never going to be public knowledge until I wrote this book after he died. I guess it doesn't matter now that people know that. Um, it's a funny thing to talk about it because you feel like, well, some things should be private. And then I think, another side of me thinks, hey, if you've turned someone on to heroin, you've got to be prepared for the consequences that might come with that. 
which might be one day the person will tell the world that this is the guy who, who turned me on to that. But you could have said no. I had said no thousands of times to heroin when it was someone going, hey, Steve, you know you're hacking heroin? And I was going, no, mate, no, I don't want to have any heroin. But then I'm sitting there with my best friend, the guy who I'm in a, sort of in a group with him, think he, he and I think each other's the bee's knees. And then one night we're sitting there he was drowning his sorrows because Amanda Brown had left him, the violinist, and I was drowning my sorrows because I had a pair of identical twins on the way in about three or four months, which I didn't know what to do with, feeling completely overwhelmed and unworthy to be a father. And I'm, so we're sitting in a pub in Bondi Junction, I'm drinking lemon squash, because I don't drink, and Grant's sitting there drinking some whiskies and stuff, and then he goes, fuck this. What is it? I'm gonna get some fucking drugs. What are you gonna get, Grant? some fucking heroin and it, it seemed so right it seemed like all my life had been leading up to that moment and there's mr clean the cleanest man that david bowie song he's the cleanest star the best they ever had there's grant mr boy next door saying to me that i've never heard this before i'm gonna get some heroin suddenly because it was him and he was my friend and because of the hot night and our, our misery and not seeming to get sing, sitting there drinking and wasn't going anywhere it seemed to me that was the way to break the stalemate of where we were sort of stuck at and it was <laughs> that's for sure it broke the stalemate in every way so in relation to heroin when he died any reflection as i said he was my best friend he i never had a friend like that before i felt he was completely on every level, he was my equal. And, and then we, we stopped being friends because of heroin, because I kept going and he didn't. And I really embraced it. He had never foresawn the way I would take to it and embrace it. So speaking of, just briefly, about the heroin, which you did go into detox and got off it, how did that enhance your creativity? Because in the beginning, you, you say in the book, it amplified your it creativity. Did. It did. When I started with the opiates, they definitely en enhanced my creativity. They gave me a, a state that I was trying to capture. A sort of a, I wanted to get that big, warm, sickly, sweet feeling that heroin would bring on, that feeling of calm. I sort of, in, I interpreted this as a big, warm sort of bass guitar and keyboards and lots of reverb, this kind of feeling I was feeling when I was taking it. And sure enough, I did a couple of records in the honeymoon period. Um, one was called Narcosis, which was a, a sort of a solo album. And one, the church did one called Priest Equals Aura. And it enhanced my creativity. And then as I became more and more of an addict, it didn't enhance my creativity at all. In fact, I pretty much made music despite heroin. It was just something I had to, I had to have some heroin so I could feel normal. And then I could, on top of that, I could smoke my joint and go, oh, okay, now I can create. But the heroin, after a while, quickly it just becomes the answer to every problem. Every question is, is the answer becomes heroin. The church Classified as an 80s band, don't necessarily like that label. You personally like to be classified as a classic rock band. Yeah. We're not an 80s band. We're, um... But you started in the we 80s. We started in the 80s. The 80s gave us a zeitgeist to react against. 
So it's very frustrating and ironic now if someone tries to say, oh, you're an 80s band, because we were diametrically opposed to the 80s. We were a 60s band that happened to start in the 80s. Did you ever think um, the church would be this famous? And because you are now currently going through a renaissance mm. with your current album Further Deeper and you're touring internationally soon, headlining South by Southwest next year. I didn't know what would happen. Um, you know, some days I get up and I go, wow, that's really, I'm really surprised people still come and see us and people still like us. And I go, wow, that's amazing. Other days I get up and go, we should be doing better than we are. We should be, you know, we should be as big as blah, blah, blah. And we should be bigger and better than we are. What's wrong with people? So sort of oscillating all the time between being grateful and thankful for what we do have. And then, you know, the next day I, say, I wake up and I'm full of impatience and sort of bitterness I'm confused about our status and I sort of don't do, I don't think about it much anymore. I just sort of drift along. You can spend so much time trying to observe yourself and trying to figure out where you fit in and after a while you sort of collapse under the strain of trying to be the thing that does it and then the thing that's reviewing it at the same time. Steve Kilby from The Church, thanks for talking with me and thanks for talking about your memoir. Okay, thanks, Andrew.